Hey everyone, Courtney from a Nefarious Nightmare podcast here. If any of you have been following Amanda or myself on our socials, there's a small chance that you've noticed some Easter eggs. A movement has been occurring at least since May of 2022, and even before that. If true crime fascinates you and you want to learn about deviant behavior against those deemed extra vulnerable, or delve into how it impacts the survivors and victims straight from the source, then be on the lookout and subscribe to A Nefarious Nightmare wherever you get your podcasts, and be ready for something coming mid-June 2023. Don't forget to be vigilant, for when you mess with the bees, you get the hive. We have covered nearly 200 cases here on Coffee and Cases podcast. Since some of those involve multiple victims, I'm confident in saying that we've talked about well over 200 individuals on this show. Over 200 unique people who have, even if just for an hour of our show, truly touched each of our hearts. I know for Allison and myself, the people we talk about stick with us well past the hours of research and writing and the hours we spend recording and editing. Their stories remain a part of us because behind each story, each theory, and each unexpected twist is a person. A person who was uniquely their own individual, who fit uniquely into their family group or their friend group, and who had unique plans for their own life. We've all heard it said before that we're each unique, but what does that really mean to us? What attributes to our own personal uniqueness? According to Minimal Made Simple, there are 15 qualities that define each of us as unique. Some are ones that we would know without really thinking about it, you know, like the complexity of our DNA, our genetics, our physical characteristics. But some things we may overlook that play a factor in who we are, like our personality. Whether we realize it or not, each choice we make, each success we have, each downfall we stumble through shapes our personalities and molds us into the people we are. Building on that is our attitude. How we see the world impacts who we are and how we react to situations we're put in. Similar to this is our perspective. But some attributes we don't think about form us as unique people, like our habits. While we may learn certain aspects of habits from family or friends, over time we shape our own habits, which are uniquely our own. Our intelligence plays a role in our uniqueness as well. And I don't just mean if you're book smart. Everyone shows their intelligence in various ways. For some, it is book smarts, while for others, it could be street smarts, or perhaps you fall somewhere in the middle. Regardless, that makes you, you. Our goals and experiences factor into our uniqueness. Our experience shapes us in ways that our intelligence or habits couldn't. Our experience shapes our understanding of things we love and loss. It gives us a sense of happiness or sadness. Our relationships and creativity also make us uniquely us. Are you creative in multiple ways, kind of like a jack of all trades? Or do you prefer to share your creativity in a single way? That is unique about you. Lastly are our passions, your communication, your humor, and your taste. Nothing brings our uniqueness out like our passions. When we're speaking or acting on something we feel passionate about, most of the time our true colors are revealed. Your taste in clothes, movies, music also play into who you truly are. And honestly, that's amazing to think about, that each of us, while we may share common passions or experiences, are shaped differently by the things we have in common. So while we all may share the same interest in true crime, we're all affected differently by the cases we hear or the research we do. Why? Because we're unique. And just as we are each unique, so is each case we talk about every week on the show. For most of the victims we talk about, Allison and I have the honor of discussing who they were and what made them each unique. But for a small fraction of our cases, we don't have that privilege to dive into the personalities, experiences, habits, or tastes of our victims because they're nameless. 
given generic names in the hopes that someday their true identities will be discovered. And for some, that does happen, like in today's case. But for so many, their true identity, their uniqueness, is lost forever. This is the story of Pamela Buckley and James Fruind. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the cases will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, because, as we all know, conversation helps to keep the missing person in the public consciousness, helping keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Okay, so Allison, obviously, yes. while we now know the identities of the people we're talking about today, there were decades where the two were either referred to as the Sumter County Does because they were found in Sumter County, South Carolina. Okay. Or Jacques and Jane Doe because we don't know their true identities until 2021. Oh, so super recently. Mm-hmm. And this case took place in the 70s. So oh, that's a they... long time, yes, without their identity. Yeah. And I feel like I don't know this case, but I have. I feel like I've heard the name Sumter County does before. So even though I don't know the case. When I was trying to decide on a case today, because I have, well, we know this, but our listeners don't, we have so many like fillers out Mm -hmm. or family we're trying to get in touch with. And sometimes Mm -hmm. a case you think you're going to be able to do, you can't do because we've got to push delays, right. You know, Mm -hmm. whatever. And that happened for me this week so when i was trying to research another case to do i stumbled upon this one and it was covered by some like larger news outlets Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it was one that i hadn't heard of Mm -hmm. and it was really an interesting case so i felt that our sleuth hounds would find it as interesting as i did yeah that's why we're talking about them today well i'm excited to hear about it because like i said i've heard the I've heard of Sumter County does, but I don't know the story. So I'm excited to hear the details. So for today, before we jump in, I am going to sort of kind of work in chronological order. So we're going to talk about the discovery of their bodies before we talk about their identity. So for the majority of the show, I am going to call them the Sumter County does or Jacques or Jane, because that's what they were for so long. And then we'll talk about 
how their identities were discovered, and then obviously theories, because there's a lot with this one. Okay. On a seemingly normal morning, a truck driver made a very gruesome discovery just off Interstate 95 on a remote dirt road called Locklear Road in Sumter County, South Carolina. Martin Durant found the bodies of a young man and a young woman by the shoulder of the road. And this was August the 9th, 1976. Gosh, so this trucker is just moving along and then sees two bodies on the side of the road. So not even hidden. No, and I was kind of stuck on the why would this trucker be on a remote dirt road? That seems a little... Yeah, totally didn't even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm focused but, on the bodies. I didn't even notice. Yeah. But I read mm-hmm. in a lot of the research that he was just trying to find like a place to rest because you know they'll pull over oh, and he was trying to get out of sense. the way. That does make sense. Cause it is really early in the morning when he makes the discovery because it's around six twenty that morning when mm-hmm. he gets in contact with a store employee named Charles who phones the police to report the discovery. So it's early in the morning. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because I didn't even think about that. We're 76. So if even if he sees this on a remote dirt road, in order to get mm-hmm. in touch with somebody, he's either going to have to try to find a house that's close to use their phone or go back into a town. Which I guess, I mean, I don't know. Did they have like the CB... Radios oh, at that time. they must have because then, as I was just as I was saying that, I was thinking, then why didn't he call nine one one and call you know to call the police? Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. If you've got a CB, maybe I don't. I don't know. Do they? Is know. it a normal habit for the company to keep one where you could like get back in contact with the store? I mean, maybe right. if it was like a store where it was frequented by, you know, truck drivers. Oh, maybe. Maybe our trucker friends out there will have to let us know. Yeah. (laughs) But I do know that both of the victims had been shot by a three seventy five Magnum pistol. Some records said that they had each been shot multiple times. Some just specified that the woman was shot in the chest and the man was in the head. But even the ones that said multiple times, all of the shots were in the upper part of the body. Hmm. And no one, when police arrived, had the faintest idea who this duo could be because the pair had no identification on them. Hmm. So because no one knew who they were and didn't, obviously, for several decades, investigators began referring to the two as Jock and Jane Doe or the Sumter County Doe's when they were talked about together. And from the outside looking in, it appeared initially that the investigating team would be able to identify the two in no time. Because despite the fact that the scene revealed few clues, investigators were able to pull fingerprints from both the victims. And they released sketches to the public, which I posted for you to see. Yeah, you would think with that, you especially with fingerprints. Yeah, that they would, you know, be able to trace them somehow. I'm but, telling you, these sketches, they look like they're movie stars. I mean, they look to me super, like, hip, wealthy. They don't, mm-hmm. you know what I, I don't know. They just. 
And they, she looks very 1970s with her hair like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's That's very Farrah fawcett Yeah. Like feathered yeah. back. And then his longer hair. Yeah. And your assumptions were what many people believed, Allison. They thought that the pair came from affluent backgrounds based mm-hmm. on the way they appeared and things that were later discovered from the scene of the crime. Another thing that people made based on these sketches or another assumption they made based on these sketches were because the two kind of do look similar in a way. Yeah, both kind of a little bit squarish chin, mm-hmm. similar and they have, like, straight longer noses, noses kind of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And investigators thought that the resemblance was so strong that in the early days, many of them believed the two could be either related or siblings. Hmm. So, you know, they're thinking, okay, we have a possible brother-sister duo or maybe cousins that are missing. We have these fingerprints. Surely there's family somewhere that's searching for these two young people. And at mm-hmm. least if they're not related, then we now have two separate families searching for their missing right. family members. Yeah, so and then really you're hopeful. doubling your odds because then mm-hmm. maybe one of the families will say, oh my gosh, my son is missing or my daughter is missing. And then they'll say, yeah, he or she was traveling with this other person and know the other name. So I could see why but, they were hopeful. But none of those hopes ever came to fruition, at least right away. Hmm. We know that at this point, all investigators had to go on were the fingerprints of the two. And then obviously the hope that someone would come forward saying, yeah, that's my son. That's my daughter. That's my friend. And then they found some interesting things on the victims at the crime scene. And then some interesting discoveries during the autopsy. Oh, interesting. Okay. So we're going to start with Jacques Doe. Initially, investigators believed that he was between 18 and 22 years of age. But when they examined his teeth, they were able to determine that he was probably older than 22. And they estimated that he would be around 27. Okay. And when he was entered into NamUs, they approximated his age to be between 18 and 30, which I think is a pretty big range. That's a very big range. But I guess, you know, they don't want to narrow it down because then if you say, you know, 27 to 30 and someone's 18, then you would be like, oh, it can't be my person. Yeah, or even if they were 25, you'd be like, oh, that's not him because they think he's 27. I'm curious, the forensic odontist or orthodontist (laughs) or what you know whatever they're called i wonder how accurate that is like when they say i I wonder if there are habits that a person can have that make their teeth look older or if it's based on something you know kind of like a tree rings where it's Mm, you know there's something in your teeth right yeah i'm curious well i will say That he is pretty close to the age of this man when they determined who he is. Okay. Jacques Doe was white, but he had an olive complexion. He had, and I think that's why they gave him the name Jacques instead Mm. of, you know, John Doe. Mm -hmm. That's what I read in a couple sources. I don't know if that's true or not, but Mm -hmm. that's what some people said. Mm -hmm. 
he had brown hair that was shoulder length, which you saw in the picture. He had mm-hmm. brown eyes and very bushy eyebrows. In fact, they were often described as distinct. Like, that's oh. how the autopsy reported it, that he had distinct eyebrows, distinctly bushy eyebrows. That's an interesting phrase. There's some other things that this coroner pointed out that I would not have thought to point out, but I mean, I guess if you're thinking about somebody you know, you may be like, oh yeah, Johnny's been missing and he has, you know, like really bushy eyebrows. That's Maybe this true. Is yeah, that's true. You want to, I guess, focus in on anything that could be distinct. Mm-hmm. He was over six feet tall and weighed about 150 pounds, so he is a very thin man. Mm-hmm. He also had extensive and elaborate dental work done. I read that he had a very unique type of root canal that was done at some point in his life. And the procedure was so different and so unique that the investigators thought he had this work done in another country. Like this wasn't a practice that we do here. Interesting. Either that or I guess the dentist could be from another country. Oh, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. That is super interesting, though. But that does lead to, like, a potential theory as to who they could be later on that we'll discuss. Okay. It also kind of supports the affluent Mm -hmm. assumption because dental work is expensive. Yes, it is. I have, sadly, I had never had a cavity in my entire life until... I had the egg retrieval done for IVF, and I was so sick and threw up so much that I now have four. Oh, no. And they're actually probably worse because now I'm like a living heartburn machine. So, (laughs) who knows? Yes. Be prepared to shell out some money. Yeah. Um, he also appeared, according to the autopsy, to have played a lot of sports because he had some scarring on various spots on his back and shoulders. And I don't know really hmm. how you're able to determine those are sports related, but that's what the autopsy said. Yeah, unless they're related to maybe these injuries are common or tears maybe. of muscles or I don't know. That's okay. You You said it would be intriguing and intriguing. it is <laughs> yeah yeah when he was discovered he was wearing levi brand jeans and a red t-shirt that said coors america's light beer on the front okay so he and... likes to drink or he's like you know showing that he's following the crowd and it had um camel challenger gt sebring 75 on the back which was obviously some sort of promotional shirt and Mm -hmm. police quickly determined that it was from the sebring race which is like a nascar thing i think some type of racing company that's Mm -hmm. held in sebring florida and it was held in 1975 so that's where the shirt comes from so now we have ties to he's been in florida at some point right the year before Mm-hmm. So maybe he yeah. has friends there. He has families there. This is yet another thing. I feel like with this sketch and fingerprints and his dental work and his distinctive bushy eyebrows and the fact that he <laughs> went to this race. I mean, that's a lot of stuff. Oh, we have even more 
specific things that you would think they're like the green curtains in the Amy Maholovic case. Mm -hmm. Like you would think somebody knows these things. Hmm. He was also found carrying a pack of Grant's truck stop matches, which is a specific truck stop. And I forgot the state. It may be South Carolina, but obviously he'd been at this truck stop. Mm -hmm. And on his wrist, he had a gold watch, a wrist watch. And what's that super expensive brand? Oh, like the Bulova watches? Yes. So he had one of those Mm. with the Twistaflex band on his wrist and it had a serial number, which if you're an investigator, you're like, ooh, you know, this is important. Right. Now we can trace it to where it was bought. (laughs) Yeah. And the serial number was H918803. And investigators were able to determine that that company made his specific watch in 1968. But the company downsized in the 70s. And when they downsized, they destroyed many of their records. No. So there was no way to determine where the victim's watch was distributed from <sighs> or where it was bought or distributed to or where it was bought. Man. Here I thought it was yeah. going to be another super, right. super good clue. Right. Because then you could say, oh, this is a guy who's been to this race. He, mm-hmm. you know had these matches in his pocket he looks like this and he also bought a watch from san francisco at this specific store right exactly but we don't we couldn't determine that he also wore a 14 karat gold ring set with a gray star sapphire stone so again pointing to that seems unique and mm -hmm. like they're wealthy yes and inside the ring like on the inside of the band the initials JPF were engraved on the ring. So we even have, a, presumably, which now we know, yes, but then they didn't, his initials. Hmm. Or the initials of someone who is close to him. Mm-hmm. You know, like a loved one or something. Yeah, like his dad or his grandpa yeah. or something. Both the ring and the watch, like I said, were really expensive. And this, together with uh, elaborate dental work, like you pointed out, suggested to many that he did come from a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. The female victim was slightly younger than the man police determined. She was originally thought to be between 18 and 20, but shortly after her case was entered into NamUs, they adjusted her age to say 18 to 25. Because 18 to 20 is kind of a small range. It is, right. She, too, was pretty small. She was 5 foot 5 inches and weighed only 100 pounds. So, again, tiny. Very slim builds on both of them. Mm -hmm. And just like the man, she also had an olive complexion. So, hence the reason some thought the two could be related. That makes sense. Jane Doe had reddish brown hair that fell right around her shoulders. She had blue-gray eyes, though some sources said they were hazel, which I guess you could maybe say... No, blue hazel eyes are like yeah. brown and green. So yeah. I feel like those are two yeah. different things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She did not have really any extensive dental work done. She didn't have any scarring, but she did have two distinct moles on the left side of her face near her mouth. Oh, so again, something like the bushy eyebrows that would stand out. And just like the bushy eyebrows, this one I was like, this is kind of very um specific. But the coroner notated that she had, quote-unquote, unusually long natural eyelashes. 
I mean, that's a, I would love for someone to say that about me, me but yeah, yeah. So he has distinctively long, bushy eyebrows and she has mm -hmm. distinctively long eyelashes. Yeah. He's got distinctive eyebrows. Mm. She's got unusual eyelashes. Okay. <laughs> it was also noted that both were very clean and very well groomed, according to the Florence Morning News, which I think is important because I think a lot of the times we automatically assume if they're unidentified that they're, you know, homeless or they're going to be dirty. We have like all of these stereotypes that we mm -hmm. automatically associate with people mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And they weren't any of these stereotypes. Right. So as I mentioned earlier, she had no surgical scars. She had never been pregnant. Her legs were left unshaven. And Jane Doe was wearing an unbleached, this is so 70s, an unbleached muslin blouse over a pink front tying halter top. <laughs> and I, I think the sleeves were like, you know, kind of those bell sleeves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She was wearing jean shorts and a floral printed scarf tied at her waist that kind of served as a belt. So, so 1970s. Definitely. She wore, this is hard for Eastern Kentucky people to say this, the name of this brand. So I just need y'all to know. She wore stride right. <laughs> Stride Right <laughs> brand wedge heel sandals, which my mom said was huge in the 70s because my mom uh -huh. was like in her heyday in 1976. She was 16. <laughs> so. And they were lavender and hot pink. So oh, she was the fashion queen. 70. Oh, definitely. She also had some distinctive jewelry. She wore three very distinctive rings. Okay. Hopefully these lead somewhere. Well, they don't, but they are. Oh. You think they would. Okay. According to WISTV, one ring contained a black oblong stone, which appeared to have like small turquoise chips embedded in it. Mm -hmm. Another ring had an ornate scrolling feather shape with coral and turquoise stones. And the third was just a simple band with red, white, and blue stones. Hmm. And when I read those descriptions while I was researching, I immediately just pictured my Aunt Sandy, who she was like the lady that had to have a ring on every finger. I'm not exaggerating. That was my Aunt Sheila. Oh. Yes. Like, does everyone same. have an aunt like that? I'm curious because I do. Yeah. We need to know. Yeah. But, my, but Aunt Sandy had a ring on every finger and these weren't just like you know, simple rings. These oh, were yeah, like beautiful ones. Flashy. Yeah. Beautiful, precious mm -hmm. stones on every finger. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. many of her rings looked like the ones that were described above. And she lived in Oklahoma. And so every Christmas, because she didn't come in a lot, because that's, you know, a pretty significant travel to come from Oklahoma to Kentucky. Mm -hmm. But um, when she would come in for Christmas, she always brought us jewelry. That and is awesome. Almost all of the jewelry that she got, and then after she passed away, um, she left each of us jewelry, and all almost all of it was made that she got on nearby reservations. Mm -hmm. And so then I was wondering, could the same thing be said about the jewelry that Jane Doe was wearing? Because especially with the turquoise, so yeah. Mm -hmm. 
and my intuition was correct because I the more I read I did find out that investigators believed that the rings were authentic handmade Native American or Mexican American costume jewelry interesting and they were all made of sterling silver and they originated in the southwestern United States hmm so I thought that was interesting yeah so now we have the fingerprints, the dental work, the rings, the watch, you know, all the details that police had gathered. And I know that, as we talked about, they're like, surely someone will recognize this ring. Right. Surely they'll recognize this watch. There are but, all kinds of unique details. Mm-hmm. But no one came forward with anything concerning their identities. But a witness did come forward, and he told investigators that earlier th that day that the couple was believed to have been murdered, mm -hmm. he heard a car driving down that dirt road. So the same road where the bodies were found. The witness told police he heard gunshots and then heard the car drive quickly away and turn back onto the highway. Okay, can I pause for a second? Yeah. This is a rural road. Number one, how is this witness hearing the car? Number two, if I saw a couple walking and then mm. I heard a car and then I heard gunshots and then I heard a car squealing away <laughs> on a dirt there road. should have been a phone call before the trucker found them. And I'm wondering to your point, like how rare would it be to see these people walking on this dirt road? Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's like almost something that kind of runs parallel to the interstate you know or maybe mm. it's like near a gas station or a rest stop and people maybe get out and walk and stretch their legs along that road like i wonder if it's more traveled or frequented than what we're right. thinking it is right it could be it could be but, but still, i do agree with you about the yeah. phone call yeah i think i would have told investigators i don't know that i would have been brave enough to investigate it myself right but i would have been brave enough to call somebody yeah, and said, hey, maybe you should check this out. You could be like, I don't know if anything happened, but here's what I heard. Just wanted Do to with let it you what know. you will. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> From this one witness testimony, theories did begin to formulate. So some speculated that the couple may have been well to do and have been robbed. But again, why are we on this road? But And I then digress. why not and why not take the watch? And right. The rings. And the rings. Others speculated that they were tourists from another country and they were mugged and murdered. But again, wildly behind the expensive yeah. watch uh -huh. and the rings. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess we can assume they stole their wallets since they didn't have that on them. So maybe there was just a lot of cash in there and they didn't bother with the other stuff. I don't but know. But I feel like if you're going to rob, you may right. as well do the whole everything. thing. Yeah. Some believe that the couple's car had been hijacked. So maybe it was mm. the couple with the people they were in the car and then they killed them to take their car. Or maybe they were hitchhikers traveling across the United States. I don't know that I really get behind that one. Right. But none of those theories led to any more clues. Hmm. We do know there were no drugs or alcohol in either of their systems. Autopsy reports showed that the pair had been eating fresh fruit potentially even ice cream in the time leading up to their deaths and there was one report of a witness seeing a couple that looked similar to the sumter county does purchasing fruit at a local like farmer's uh -huh. fruit stand mm -hmm. that lead quickly fizzled out one thing mm -hmm. that i thought was strange was when the pair were discovered neither of them had on underwear <gasps> 
Interesting. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. So time continued to go by and investigators were no close to naming the does from Sumter County. Months after the couple's murder, another witness did come forward, though, which is good. Oh, okay. This time, it was an employee of a South Carolina campground that claimed, and this claim is a little weird, he okay. claimed that he had met the couple a few weeks before their death, and according to Grunge, he said that the man's name was Jock, and that he and the woman were going to Florida. So he says he becomes friends with the duo, and later said that he was the son of a doctor, that Jock was the son of a doctor in Canada. And that he and the woman were actually on vacation. Okay. Okay. So all of the stuff, all of the info, like the shirt coming from that race that's in Florida, them calling mm -hmm. him Jock Doe, all of that is already in the news by the time this person comes forward. Right? right. So mm -hmm. is there anything to this second witness's story that wasn't in the news already? Just this assumption that he's saying the Jock was a son, was a of, a son of a doctor in Canada. Hmm. Okay. But that lead led nowhere. Hmm. By this point, the pair's description had been sent across the country. Their fingerprints were sent to the FBI. Their fingerprints were sent to other law enforcement agencies. Although several possible identities were suggested, like the one from the campground friend, mm -hmm. they were all ruled out. Sadly, no one came forward to claim either as their family or friends and no leads that gained any significant traction to finding out their identity came forward. This detail, this detail, I was like, this is a lie. Okay. But it was reported in the Daily Time News. So just know that it was reported in an, at a news station, even though it is going to sound so weird. But apparently, because they got no real significant leads, the couple's bodies were placed in airtight coffins with glass lids, like Snow White, <gasps> in a what? building behind a funeral home so that people could, like, come if they thought, oh, that might be my best friend, they could say, oh, yeah, that's him. We took a time out just to verify, and yes, apparently this is a legitimate statement. Okay, so they were placed in these snow white coffins in the hopes that someone would come by and identify them. But that never happened, and so in 1977, they were buried in donated plots in the Bethel United Methodist Church Cemetery. Now, more questions regarding these snow white coffins come to mind. Okay. How long can one stay? 
in an airtight and not closet? decay right i guess if it's airtight like is there anything in there to start right. the decay because process because you've already been prepared your body has you know so well if i die before anthony i'm going to tell him i want to be a coffee table that way if he ever brings another <laughs> woman home i'll just be i'll just be there <laughs> in the living room right there <laughs> yeah never forget so me. she knows i'm gonna haunt her that's yeah. right <laughs> but as we all know jacques and jane doe did not remain unidentified thankfully yes so before jumping into the theories and you know we think that's a long time like 40 some years but then think about the boy in the box how long he went mm -hmm. without an identity mm -hmm. true so before we jump into theories i want to discuss briefly how we found out who the sumter county does were okay so as we know they went unidentified for well over 40 years before they were exhumed in 2007 in the hopes of like maybe finding additional DNA or pulling their DNA to help identify who they are. Mm -hmm. According to Medium, Verna Moore, the former Sumter County coroner, exhumed the bodies in 2007 and she took, or they took, samples for future DNA identification. But the matching process proved a little more difficult than they initially thought mm. that it would have. And, you know, 2007 to me doesn't seem that long ago right because you know i'm stuck in that era mm -hmm. but 2007 was a pretty long time ago now mm -hmm. and so even just in those years the advancements that we can do with dna have changed significantly oh, yeah. from 2007 Definitely. to 2021 and plus if you're going to use other aspects like familial dna to find somebody obviously that is continuing to grow mm-hmm and that is what ended up happening. So in June of 2019, a Clemson resident who had taken special interest in this case, his name was Matt McDaniel, mm -hmm. suggested to authorities that they send the samples from Jacques and Jane Doe to the DNA Doe Project, which is a nonprofit organization that utilizes that genetic genealogy to identify okay. victims. Mm -hmm. Grunge said on January 19th, 2021, the bodies of Jacques and Jane Doe were finally identified via that work done by the DNA Project. Their identities were Pamela, who ended up being 25, mm -hmm. so right in that range that they thought, mm -hmm. and, well, her full name was Pamela May Buckley, and I say mm -hmm. that because James, who was found to be 30, which again in that range that the yeah. dentist suggested mm -hmm. was James Philip Fruin. So JPF, which was oh, the, the on that ring. Range. So you would think the ring would have had people yeah. come forward. Mm -hmm. So unless they have different fathers, then that means they're not related. Yeah, they were not related. Okay. A statement by the DNA Doe Project described the resolution of the case behind the missing identities and that they were still withholding additional information, including the descendants' names. I don't know if that potentially plays a part or played at that time a part into what they thought could have happened to the pair. Uh, okay. A news report published later in the day, so of that 
the day of the 19th, mm-hmm. elaborated that the male victim was from Pennsylvania and the female was from Wisconsin, though I think it was the next day they actually corrected that and said the female was from Minnesota. So they're a long way mm-hmm. from home. Yeah, definitely. Which I think could explain why their Maybe they members... were on vacation. Yeah. Or maybe they were hitchhikers. But this... Well, I guess he could still be the son of a doctor from Canada if he's living in Pennsylvania, but it doesn't sound like our uh, camping friend was right. Was, was right. He His family was, I don't remember where for my research, but they weren't from, I don't know if he was like maybe a first generation born American or if, you know, he immigrated here or what, but I do think they were from, if I remember my research, another country. Mm. Which Thus, explains the dental the work. complexion and the dental work, yeah. Okay. We know at the time of the murder, Pamela was 25. W-A-C-H reports Pamela was a former beauty queen. She was the Redwood Snow Queen in 1970 and was mm-hmm. supposed to become Miss Redwood Falls in 1971. And she does look like a beauty queen, which mm-hmm. we she does. said earlier. Mm-hmm. But instead of moving up in the pageants, she made a decision to tour the country with a folk trio called The Sun Lending. This report says, I don't know if James was a part of that or not. I didn't read that in my research, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. According to reports, she was officially reported missing in 1975 by her family. So she's reported missing like a year before she's found dead. Which seems to say that she chose to leave her family on her own and didn't want to contact Mm -hmm. them. And this kind of reminds me of, we talked about this on, when we recorded one of our Patreons for this month, Mm -hmm. that um, Heaven's Gate cult Mm -hmm. that these people just up and disappeared and like all their family was reporting them missing. This is kind of what she, her scenario reminds me of. Mm. James was 30 years old at the time of his murder, and WACH reports that James grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He graduated from McCaskey High School, and that he was actually previously married, but was divorced, mm-hmm. before he was also reported missing in 1975. Hmm. I wonder why these two chose to then leave their families and not contact their families again now i'm making the assumption here that between the time that they were reported missing by their families in 1975 and august of 1976 that they weren't under some duress where they couldn't contact their family you know obviously is the Mm -hmm. assumption i'm making but i think that that's interesting and i it makes me wonder what was going on in their lives that they made those decisions to leave Despite the fact that their identities had been determined, we were still left wondering who killed them and why. Like you said, there's just a lot of questions I want to have <laughs> I want to have answers to. Right, right. There have been several theories that have been proposed over the years to explain what happened to them, and we're going to explore some of those now, but there were a lot. So I kind of combined some and then kind of picked and chose other ones okay. that I thought were more realistic. Okay. So theory number one is that and this is the most commonly proposed theory is that the duo was somehow involved in drug smuggling. 
Hmm. Apparently, we come to this conclusion because Sumter County, at the time that they were killed, was known to be a hub for drug trafficking in the 70s. Oh. So there is an article, and many of these series come from this article, um, that's called The Couple Has Been Identified as Pamela Mae Buckley and James Paul Fruind, that I'm going to talk about a lot, because this person that wrote this article has dedicated, like, a significant portion of his life into helping find out who they, these people were okay. and what happened to them. Okay. So he has a lot of good research and theories and things like that. But this article thinks or theorizes that one of the reasons we can assume that they were involved in drug smuggling is the way that they were killed because it was an execution style murder. And this author says that this is a mafia style hit so it suggests that they were targeted for some reason. Now, the only thing that I find, I don't know, different, and I know there mm. might be more to this theory that you're going to tell me about, but the the assumption that it sounds like a mafia-style hit, because, yes, the man was shot in the head, but she was shot in the chest, Right. Mm-hmm. And to me, well, unless you're one of the things like going with one of the articles that said there were multiple gunshot mm-hmm. wounds. But again, I know what you're saying. I don't think that would be execution style. It right. One shot. Right. So I, hmm, I don't know. Well, that same article goes on to say that Pamela and James, well, James specifically, was found wearing that racing shirt mm-hmm. and it was an IMSA shirt. For that Sebring race. Mm-hmm. And this IMSA corporation was known to have connections to drugs. In fact, in the early 80s, several racers and race teams were convicted of drug smuggling charges. And this article said these weren't mm. small-time drug deals or drug smugglers. They were part of multi-million dollar criminal organizations who were smuggling tons of drugs into the United States. And they're saying that these racers and the race teams had strong ties to organized crime and even to the CIA. So I think the shirt kind of connects this theory of drug smuggling along with for some people. Mm -hmm. So they're thinking maybe he worked on one of those racing teams or he knew somebody and somehow got involved. Or even, you know, he was trafficking the drugs back and forth from florida to sumter county Hmm. you know and just happened to pick up that t-shirt at a race okay where he was getting those drugs i won't completely discount the theory but i want to hear your other potentials okay another theory is that the sumter county does were victims of organized crime which i think could connect to the drug theory as Mm -hmm. well Mm mm-hmm This one suggests that they may have been involved in some sort of criminal activity and were killed as a result of that criminal activity. Again, I think we could connect that to the drugs. Much of this theory comes from that same article that we just talked about. But apparently there were also enormous amounts of local corruption within this small area where their bodies were found. So apparently, and this person that wrote this article actually chose to remain unnamed for a really long time because I don't know 
I didn't like look too much into him, but I didn't know maybe he's like from that area. Mm. Kind of like a Chris or Rogers situation. You don't mm-hmm. want, mm-hmm. you know, to make p- local people mad. Right. But there was also, according to him, enormous amounts of local corruption. Several prominent businessmen and politicians were implicated in at least three murder to hire schemes. Hmm. And these were people like the local bank president, a local mayor. Oh. So high up people, I'm assuming, mm-hmm. in this community. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, there was another incident just a few months prior to Pamela and James' murder, where a police chief was murdered by another officer in very suspicious circumstances, just a couple miles from where the couple was murdered. Hmm. My thinking, though, with this is, especially if they were not known by any of the locals, I don't necessarily know if it would be the organized crime, but it could be the fact that if there were other crimes and other murders just a couple of miles away from where Pamela and James are found, potentially they could have been walking along and have seen something that they shouldn't Mm. have seen. I didn't even think about that. That's a good Mm -hmm. point. This one, this next theory, I I don't, it's, it's not for me. Okay. But this theory says that James and Pamela were killed as part of a personal vendetta that someone that they knew was targeting them and maybe held like a personal grudge. Many people speculate, could this have been like the result of a lover scorned? Hmm. But now, this one, if that is the case, then I feel like, and this is totally off the wall, and there's no backing to this whatsoever. This is just me <laughs> thinking about the details of the case. If I were to go with this theory, I would think that the scorned lover was someone who Pamela had been with. And the reason I say that is because she was shot in the chest, which makes me think of like your heart where somebody would be like, you know, you're going to break my heart. You know, I I don't know. That's totally off the wall, but that's just, or I wonder if it could be the opposite. Like they planned out how they were going to kill James, which would have been, you know, the shot in the head. And she was just kind of an afterthought and they just shot her. I mean, it could be. That definitely could But be. again, we're just talking off the wall here. Mm-hmm. Another theory is that the Sumter County Does, this one is interesting to me, were part of the Witness Protection Program. Hmm. And this has a lot of following, this theory does. Okay. I find this interesting because, you all know, I have a hard time... I'm trying to do better, but I have a hard time believing that the government and law enforcement or the FBI or whoever are not inherently good. Like Mm -hmm. I have a hard time Mm -hmm. saying that they're doing bad things. So this one gives me pause because if we believe this theory, then we're also believing that the government knew all along who these two individuals were, but for some reason weren't saying their true names. Which And if that's the case, we're wasting a lot of money. Well, which that, I guess, yeah. which I guess could be, you know, they were there was a bigger scene at play that we didn't know about, and their mm-hmm. identities couldn't be released at the time, which maybe is true as well. Well, I was only thinking of the 
witness protection thing because they had obviously left home a Mm -hmm. year before and Mm -hmm. had not contacted their families. And obviously I know that that happens all the time. I, I get it, but it's the fact that it happened with both of them. And here they're being found together. Well, that's what I was about to say. They're together. Yeah. So that's weird. So, you know, maybe this is true. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can also connect the witness protection program to the organized crime theory. Maybe they were, you know, being looked for in some way. Mm -hmm. So obviously, not surprisingly, these last two theories also come from that same article that I've mentioned. But um, in this theory, we have somehow associated the couple... With the mobster John Roselli. So this article says that John Roselli, and I had no idea who this man is. Perhaps that speaks of my educational background. (laughs) But apparently, um, this guy was most known for his connection to the Kennedy assassination. Oh. Did did you know who this person was? I did not. I did not, no. Okay. I don't feel as dumb now. (laughs) So John Roselli had testified in the Warren Commission that he believed rogue elements within the CIA in conjunction with the mafia had been responsible for JFK's assassination. The Warren County Commission had wanted to recall Roselli for further testimony before he was found. I feel like this is a broad connection before he was found floating in a barrel near Miami. So he's dead. And his case is also unsolved as it probably always will be. Sounds to me like he was about to give some info that people didn't want to get out. Yes. And subscribers of this theory point to the fact that the body of Roselli was found floating in a bay near Miami the same day the couple was murdered. So some people are being a little broad here and connecting those dots, speculating Mm -hmm. that there was some type of connection in the case. Because they point to the fact that James was wearing the t-shirt from Sebring, Florida, which is close to Miami. And people say, you know, it's not uncommon if the mafia is taking you out for these hits to be carried out in groups, like we're taking everybody out at once. Yeah. To me, there's not enough to to this theory. I don't think so either. Yeah. Yeah. The last theory that we're going to discuss is could the couple's murder be connected to a truck driver named George Lonnie Henry? (gasps) Three names and a truck driver. Okay. I know. Check, check. Mm-hmm. Apparently, in December of 1976, George was stopped in South Carolina for driving under the influence. It was discovered upon this stop that he was also in possession of a stolen gun with a scratched-off serial number. Mm-hmm. Sketchy. So, they obviously take the gun, they do some ballistic tests, and they were able to determine that this gun with a scratched off serial number was the weapon used to kill James and Pamela. Oh, okay. Well, this seems like a no brainer. I know. But then the article said, quote, subsequent interviews and polygraphs yielded mixed results as to whether or not he was the one responsible for their murders. Uh, Well, then who else is? How'd he get the gun? So according to his statements, 
He says, there's no way I could have committed these murders because my wife was sick and I was at her bed, like her bedside, in a North Carolina hospital. So I was hours away. Do we have visitor records? Well, it had been so long since the, this is what that article said, that too much time had passed to really be able to verify if his alibi is correct or not. Hmm. Or true or not, I should say. So how does he explain the gun? So he says, this is still a mystery, but he claims his brother Henry had given it to him as a gift. If my relative was like, here, happy birthday, take this gun with a scratched off serial number, I'd probably be like, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Why is it so thought that counts. Yeah. Yeah. But they also say that the gun was originally stolen by a group of thieves in the Raleigh-Durham area before Henry came into possession of the gun. So there's like a whole chain of this gun that was obtained illegally. So we have no records, like paper records of who had it and when they had it. I mean, I guess all of that could be true. The thieves could have gotten it and then they sold it at some really cheap price. Right. Mm-hmm. So the brother or is like, oh, I, yeah, I can't pass this up. And then he's like, oh, I'll just give this gift to my brother because I got a good deal on it. You know, I don't Which know. Which I do have to say if so, I guess the questions are, do we think it's this random group of people, these thieves potentially that killed James and Pamela? Or could it be Henry or maybe even potentially the brother? But what a crappy brother if he's like, you know, I just killed these two people. You know who really would love to have this gun as a present? Is my, my brother. brother George. I know. <laughs> yeah. Let me give yeah. this to my brother to implicate yeah. him in this murder. Yeah, that would be awful. But you're, I mean, you ask a good question because no, I don't think that a group of thieves had used this gun because it goes back to us talking about if it were a group of thieves, then why wouldn't they have taken jewelry and expensive watches Mm -hmm. and things like that? And like, I don't think, you know how early we talked about their car could have been hijacked. Well, wouldn't that have been found by now? Mm -hmm. Their car. And so if they were, attacked by thieves and the thieves stole their car i think that would have been resolved by now right i don't know i guess if i'm if i'm hard pressed to pick one of them (laughs) then there had to have been something in my mind that drove them both away from home i don't know if they were involved in something or what there was also something that drove the two of them together. You know, in a way yeah. where they're traveling together, neither one is contacting their family. So there is the potential that they were somehow involved in something, whether that is the drug smuggling, organized crime, kind of more generally. Um, but I don't think that they were just hitchhikers. I don't Mm-mm. think that they, that it was necessarily a, a personal vendetta. And I, I also don't mm. think that there's a connection to the mobster in my yeah, mind. I agree. Um, but there are a lot of peculiar elements that, that make me think maybe, maybe organized crime. 
The story of Pamela and James is a crazy case with seemingly outlandish theories, but it's an unsolved mystery that's captivated true crime enthusiasts for decades. Despite exhaustive efforts by law enforcement and amateur sleuths alike, the reason these two were killed and who killed them remains a mystery. Hopefully, we've done something here on Coffee and Cases to shed more light on a case that, like all others, deserves to be solved. We've taken you on a journey through the timeline of events leading up to the discovery of the Doe's body, as well as the subsequent investigation and the forensic analysis that were conducted to eventually determine their true identities. We talked through several theories, each nearly as likely as the next, or unlikely as the next, and yet all of us are left still wondering who did this. It is up to all of us to demand more resources and attention for these cases and keep the pressure on law enforcement to do their job and bring justice to those who've been wronged or for people who may know something to be brave enough to speak up and change the trajectory of cases just like this one. In the end, this case serves as a reminder of the importance of never giving up hope and never forgetting those who've been lost. While the mystery may never be fully solved, we owe it to the victims and their families to keep fighting for answers and to ensure that their memories are never forgotten. Again, please like and join our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Twitter at Cases Coffee, on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. Love notes with Maggie and Allison. Whoop, whoop. We have lots of love going out this week to Brittany, Jennifer, Courtney, AJ, Amy, Clara, Hannah, KA Marie, and to Lynette for reaching out to us on social media this past week. Keep those messages coming because even if we don't get the opportunity to respond, it honestly makes our week. And we do try really hard to respond to all of you because we do love when you reach out to us. Just sometimes our work schedules get a little crazy and it takes us a while to get it back does. to you. Yes. And speaking of one of those individuals, Lynette wrote such a sweet note that I wanted to share with you guys. She said, quote, I just wanted to drop in to say how much I love your podcast. So many podcasters stick to the facts of the case, but you ladies really help your listeners feel as if they know the victims. The genuine care and concern you have for each case you share comes across loud and clear. Keep it up from a fellow teacher. I love that. I know. It's so kind and made me so happy. And we also have love going out to our newest short and sweet five-star written review. Hey, you know what? It's okay. That's we right. like those two. From Jaja Bean, who wrote, quote, here's the review. Great show. And listen. Great review. We love it. Hey, I love a five-star review no matter how long or short they are. So thank you. And we realized that we missed a five-star review last week. So we want to apologize and send lots of love to Bailey who wrote, quote, so much effort and personality put into these. I've had both of the speakers as teachers in high school, and their work combined compares to none. I love listening. Thank you all for some good entertainment. 
Well, Bailey, you're the sweetest. I know. Yes, that makes me so happy. And to end, we have lots of love going out to Suzanne on Patreon. We hey. are looking, I know. We are looking forward to sending out some merch in May to patrons like her who have joined at the $12, $15, or $20 a month level. Your support means everything to our little show. Mm-hmm. And if you have not yet joined Patreon, check out the link in our show notes, or you can go to patreon.com slash coffee and cases today to get access to bonus content. And if you want to be part of the swag that will be coming out in August, join now at one of those higher tiers. And with that, all of our love is going out to each and every one of you. Until next week, Sleuth Hounds.